ಓಂಹರಿಂ ಪರಮಂದ ಉಪದೇಷ್ಟಾರೀಶ್ವರ ವ್ಯಾಪಕ ಕಾರಣ ತಂ ನಮ್ಯಹಂ so in aparoksha anubhuti we were studying vedantic meditation the technical term is nididhyasana and the way it has been presented here shankaracharya has given 15 practices the terms the 15 terms are all borrowed from um hatha yoga from patanjali yoga but he has reoriented the meanings which we have seen over the last several classes and the 15 terms have been explained in the last few classes vedantic meditation in depth what is the purpose of vedantic meditation remember vedantic meditation is the third of three practices first one is shravana literally means hearing the second one is manana literally means cogitating or reflecting reasoning and third one is this meditation meditation nididhyasana so that that means absorption or assimilation what we hear first you get the good news then think about it and try to understand it and then dwell upon it soak it in so that it becomes a living reality for you so that third part is the vedantic meditation and that's what we were discussing so far um 15 steps Do you remember? I do. <laughs> Let's see. First is yama, the moral practices. Um niyama, other the moral disciplines that wants to be done. Third one? Tyagaha. Tyagaha Tyaga is renunciation, external renunciation. Then maunam, silence. And then desha. the auspicious place space but particular space then kala time auspicious time then after that asana sitting sitting then you have mula bandha the lock the yogic locks and then you have deha samyam the posture of the body and then drik sthiti where do you put your eyes the vision then 11th will be pranayama it is control of the breath 12th is pratyahara withdrawing the senses from it their objects 13th is dharana focusing focus on the object of meditation 14th dhyana when the focus becomes steady and the last one is samadhi the deepest absorption so 15 practices they have their yogic meanings in yoga note two things one is each term has its own distinct practice sitting is a kind of practice there are different asanas postures for sitting breathing is a kind of different kind of practice focusing is a different kind of practice all of these are different practices but the way shankaracharya taught taught this all of them are seen as techniques of dwelling on brahman dwelling on the advaitic teaching that's what we saw also note that in yoga these 15 would be 
progressively interiorization, going deeper and deeper within. Just see, the first, the yama, the moral practices are, they mostly deal with your relationships with others. Yama, telling the truth, non-violence, self-control, your relationships with others, with the world. The second one, niyama, deals with the moral and spiritual disciplines which you have to practice yourself. The third one is tyaga, where you become less busy, give up some external positions, in a very general sense. That's still closer to yourself. Then the fourth one is the maunam, a silence. Physical silence at least, to begin with. Then the fifth one is the proper place for practice. Sixth one is a proper time for practice. And then the proper sitting for practice. You come closer and closer to yourself. Proper sitting for practice. Only after you sit in a particular asana, then only you can apply the next one, which is Mulabandha, the lock. And then after that comes the, um, the way you hold the body. Only after that comes where, where you will put your eyes. Drikstiti. Only after that comes, now you turn to breathing. I mean, you're breathing all the time, but the control of breath, practice of breath control. After that, you are now ready to withdraw the senses from outside inwards, Pratyahara. And only after that, you can start focusing on the object of meditation. At first, the focus will be intermittent, that is Pratyahara, that is um, the Dharana. And then the focus becomes steady, like the flow of oil, like the unflickering lamp. Here it's flickering. So unflickering lamp, um, that is dhyana. And then that further deepens into the deep absorption called samadhi. So deeper and deeper inwards, more interiorization in yoga. But the Vedantic meaning which we saw, the non-dualistic meaning, each one of them leads you straight to the heart of reality. Any one of them you take up, in yoga you have to practice all of them. You can't just say, I will practice breathing. That's it. No. All of them have to be practiced to lead you to finally to Samadhi. But in the Vedantic approach given by Shankaracharya, take any one of them. They will lead you straight to the highest realization. They are all methods of dwelling on Brahman. So take up one, take up two, three, all fifteen. Uh, and the goal is to be free. So that is the whole purpose. Now last time we had done up to... 124, Samadhi. Congratulations, I've reached Samadhi. <laughs> now he's going to wrap up the subject. A few verses to wrap up the subject. He'll tell us the importance of this, encourage us to practice it constantly, warn us about the problems we are bound to face, and so on, before he goes on to the uh, next topic. So, uh, 125. Imang chakritrimanandam Imang chakritrimanandam Tavat sadhu samabhyaset Tavat sadhu samabhyaset Vashyo yavat kshanat pungsaha Vashyo yavat kshanat pungsaha Prayukta san bhavetsvayam Prayukta san bhavetsvayam How long do I have to practice? These are good things, but our nature is 
Any good thing you t- tell us to practice? How long do I have to do it? If someone tells you, have fun, never ask, how long do I have to have fun? No. Sit and meditate. How long? This is fun actually. If properly understood, this is really joyous. This is really peaceful. One Swami described it, Swami Prabhavanandaji, who founded the Vedanta Society of Southern California. He describes being, getting a blessing, uh, Swami Brahmananda, his hand touching his head. He said, every time that Swami touched my head, it was like a cool shower on a hot day. Cool shower is not very much appreciated here in Manhattan. In India, it's very appreciated, especially in, say, in, in summer. So it's like a cool shower. You could physically feel an influence on your body, on your mind, on your uh, the whole vital system, prana. So like that. It, it's joyous. It's peaceful. One teacher said, you know, there are different practices of fasting. In Ekadashi, many Hindus, they fast in Ekadashi, but there are different ways of fasting. One is the most rigorous one, where you do it without even drinking water. Not a sip of water will pass your lips. The other one is, you can take at one time some fruits, or you can take only water. The other one is you can take some fruits. Or you can, the the most extravagant one is where you do not take rice and some other things. Other than that, you can take lots of other food. Probably eat more than (laughs) you eat any other time. So this teacher was saying that, these days when I recommend fasting to... Uh, some seeker who comes and says, what practices should I do? I say, you have to do fasting. And the first question is, so what should I eat? <laughs> You're not supposed to eat, that's the point. <laughs> but the first question is always, what should I eat? So these practices, our first question is, how long do I have to do them? And he gives, he gives you an answer here. You should sum up, say, practice with care and diligence. What do you practice? Imam Akritrimamanandam, this non-artificial bliss, I'll explain that later. But how long do I have to practice? Vashyoyavatkshanat, it must come under your control that in an instant, whenever it is summoned, it should be available to you. This non-dual realization, it's not that you will always go around saying, I am Brahman, I am Brahman, how are you today, I am Brahman. What are you going to have for breakfast? I am Brahman. No, you don't go around doing that. You are absolutely normal, just like everybody else. Uh, in fact, it's recommended. After enlightenment, there, in the Mandukya Karika, Gaudapada says, behave like the most normal person in this world. So you're most normal, most ordinary. Don't try to show that you're something extraordinary or different. And yet, whenever necessary, when there is physical pain, when there is suffering, when you are insulted, when you feel depressed, when any kind of problem comes in the world, immediately you summon it. It should be like your superpower. It should come to your rescue immediately and you will be at peace. Until that is attained, you should go on practicing. He says, Shanat, it should happen in a moment. I have to struggle really hard and then I sort of calm my mind down, not yet done. It should effortlessly come up. I am the one unbroken ocean of existence, consciousness, bliss. What is this little problem to me? Somebody said something, so what? One Swami put it very beautifully. He said, the transition is from what to so what. Somebody said something, what? (laughs) 
your transition should be? So what? <laughs> I think that was a very nice way of putting it. So, um, it should happen in an instant. It, you should be able to summon it in an instant. Um, I mentioned it earlier also. One website I saw, it's about Vedanta. And he named the website Never Not Here. So he's not saying that it's here. He's just saying never not here. So it's um, in a negative sense, in a double negative, it's always present. Whenever you want it, it's there. But it's not obvious. Imamcha Kritrimamanandam. This is an important phrase. Suddenly he introduces this phrase. Practice this or retain this non-artificial bliss, meaning the natural bliss of the self. Practice staying in this. You see, our happiness is within, but we have forgotten that. We are like that person who has been left a million dollars or a billion dollars by the proverbial rich uncle, but the guy is on welfare. Why? Because uh, he says, I don't know which bank the money is in. I don't have the passbook to that. I, I, I mean, I am a billionaire, theoretically. Practically, I'm on welfare. I have to beg for, uh, for every little thing I need. We are like that. The ocean of bliss is within us, always available. And yet we have to go around with a begging bowl in the world outside. I beg for a little bit of happiness from people, from, from food, from scent, from sight, uh, rupa, rasa, gandha, sparsha, uh, the dif different sense inputs. Little bit of happiness, little bit of happiness with, uh, with cap in hand, a hat in hand or bowl in hand. From people, a good word here, a little encouragement there, a little love there. I go around begging for happiness. So this neediness comes because I do not know. I have, I have no access. I read about it. But I have no access to the natural bliss which continuously flows inside. One poet in India uh, who wrote a Bengali song, basically it means, um, my Lord is praying to God, my Lord, they live on the shores of the ocean of bliss and yet they die of thirst. They scrabble about in the dry sand trying to find a drop of water. But they do not, they'll never look over their shoulders and see the ocean. Of, and it's not salty water. It's, it's nectar. It's the ocean of bliss. Shankaracharya in one of his commentaries says, We live next to the ocean of bliss from which we hanker for the little bit of spray that comes out of that ocean. We, we chase about for that in this world. Whereas that entire ocean, all of that is you yourself. Sri Ramakrishna would tell the story of the little dog who found a delicious bone. But there was a secret to the bone that the dog did not know. The dog would chew the bone and found it very delicious. But actually what happened was it was a dry bone and rather sharp. And it would cut the lip of the dog and it would bleed a little and the dog would taste its own blood and think how delicious this bone is. And it would carefully bury the bone and the next time it wanted to have that taste, go and dig out that bone and chew, chew on it. We may laugh at that poor little dog, but we are, we are exactly in the same situation. All the things in the world, money and success and praise and relationships and whatever we are looking for in the world outside, 
All of those are our little dry bone, which we chew on to get a little bit of pleasure. And that pleasure comes from within, from our real nature. The, so that the pleasure which comes from within, the real nature, akritrimananda. Kritrim means artificial in Sanskrit. Akritrim, non-artificial, otherwise natural. Or swarupa, our very nature. It's the very, it's the overflowing of the very nature, of our very nature, our own self, which we experience as the happiness in the world. And that, that bliss, ananda, the word used in Sanskrit is ananda, bliss of the self. That bliss is manifested by this Vedantic meditation. When you dwell in, in your real self as Brahman through these, these techniques of Vedantic meditation, you manifest this bliss. The enlightened persons, those who are spiritually advanced, I don't know if they're enlightened or not, but the people I've met who I consider to be spiritually advanced, one thing I noticed, they're always in great joy. And that joy has no cause. Almost like little children, you know, you can see them hopping and skipping and running along and playing in their own minds with a bright smile, a very natural, joyous smile pouring out from... That comes, they're naive, they're innocent. And the sage is also innocent but not naive. The sage gets that joy from within. So, he says, practice that, dwell on that till it is available to you at a moment's notice. Akritrimananda. The closer the source of your joy is, the safer you are. If your joy depends on uh, money, then you are a slave to the stock market. Ups and downs, your joy is, is bound to that. Your joy depends on husband, wife. Then a good word or a bad word, your joy is tied to that, goes up and down with that. Joy depends on children. You know, <laughs> that child is all right, all right. Always source of anxiety, what will happen next? So, more your joy is outside, the more tired you are, the more ultimately unhappy you will be. That doesn't mean that you will not love husband, wife, children, all your achievements, but you know that your happiness does not depend on them. Your relationship with them should be one of giving, rather than one of hat in hand, bowl in hand, begging. No. Not neediness. The more your happiness is within. So I remember one Swami, a senior Swami, telling a young monk, cultivate the habit of reading. That monk was very active. So he used to do a lot of work, good work in the ashram. The Swami said, look, one day you will be old. You might, might be sick and unable to work all this time, all, all this kind of work. Then what will you do with your time? Cultivate the habit of reading. Yeah. Reading holy books, scriptures, texts, and the joy in keeping your mind there in a high level. One day, then he goes on. One day your eyes may be spoiled, you may not be able to read. Cultivate the habit of japa, repeating the holy name, the mantra. The joy is in repeating the mantra. See, that's much closer to you then. As long as you can think, you can repeat the, the mantra. Closer the source of joy to your real self. The greater the joy, the safer the source of joy. The purer the joy. You don't depend on anything else for your happiness. There's a saying among 
monks in uh, in the Himalayas who beg for their food. Says 23 hours in a day I am an emperor. Only one hour I am a beggar. 23 hours I am an emperor. One hour beggar. One hour beggar means when I go to beg for my food. 23 hours other 23 hours in a day I am free. I am the Lord of the world. I don't want it because I don't want anything. Not because. I have everything in that sense, but because I do not want anything. In that sense, I have everything. So the source of joy has to be inner, akritrimananda. Ultimate source of joy is the self itself, Brahman, Satchidananda, Atma, Turiya, whatever term you use, that is the ultimate source of joy. In Panchadashi, the question is asked: Why are enlightened people so happy, so naturally happy? And he asks you to consider, imagine, if all that had to be done in human life, imagine you have, if, if you have done that. Imagine the feeling that I have achieved whatever has to be achieved in life. Imagine the peace. I took it as peace, but somebody, once I said this, somebody raised a hand and wouldn't it be boring? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's how people think in Manhattan. <laughs> Nothing more left to achieve. No, not that way. But all that has to be the highest that can be achieved in human life, I have achieved it. Suppose you feel that way, number one. All that I, I can get in human life, anything that one can get in life, I've got it all. Add it to that. All that can be known in human life, all knowledge possible. I have known the highest, the, the thing to be known, I have known it. The thing to be got, I have got it. The thing to be done, I have done it. If you could have that kind of feeling, really, not imagine it. If, if, if you could have that kind of feeling, imagine, imagine then how much your peace would be. How much your satisfaction would be. How free you would be. Then you would live in freedom. There would be nothing that you would want from the world. Your life would be a life of peace and joy and giving, a blessed life, a life of blessing for you and for others. So that is Akritrimananda, the non-artificial or the natural bliss of the self, Ananda. That is manifested by this Vedantic meditation. It's always there, but if you want to experience it, then this Vedantic meditation. All right, now let us go ahead. Still the question remains, how long should I practice? So the answer is coming in the next one. Tata sadhana nirmuktaha Tata sadhana nirmuktaha Siddho bhavati yogirat Siddho bhavati yogirat Tatswarupam na chaitasya, Tatswarupam na chaitasya, Vishayo manasogiram, Vishayo manasogiram. So, at this point, Yogi Raj, he calls him the best among you, the king among yogis, Yogi Raj. So, the king among yogis, this person becomes free of sadhana, free of practice. This is the end of practice. Tata sadhana nirmuktaha. He transcends practice. Then tatswarupam nachaitasya vishayo manasogiram. What state this person, he or she attains to, 
that state is beyond description we beyond the understanding of the worldly people now let's take this at the beginning sadhana the word sadhana in english spiritual practice sadhana literally means an instrument so i want to cross the river i take the ferry the ferry is my sadhana to cross the river i take the bridge to cross the river or the tunnel to cross the river that's my sadhana the 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 instrument i use to attain my end the end the goal which you want in sanskrit it is called sadhya goal objective and the means which you employ are called sadhana now very implicit and you are called sadhaka the person who uses these means now implicit in this terminology is the fact that if it is to be used at one time when your objective is attained you will give it up you say you cross the george washington bridge and then you you go, go across to new jersey and then you say oh what a wonderful bridge it's it's blessings are endless it enabled me to cross over this big river i shall never leave the bridge how silly to reach the other shore you have to leave the bridge right big bridge here george washington bridge yes, yes. so you have to leave the bridge it is meant to help you to cross over you cross the in the the ganga river in the front of belurmat go to the other side to calcutta oh the boat is so nice it helped me to cross over this big river and i shall never let go of the boat i'll drag it along with me wherever i go that's silly so sadhana once you have you have attained the goal then you're supposed to go beyond it leave it behind the opposite mistake is that oh i'm supposed to leave it behind let me leave it behind now in the case just because since i'm supposed to leave it behind why not leave it behind now paul walter the classic example is a person going to uh, jump over a high barrier pole vaulting so it needs the pole to reach that altitude to re- reach that height and then needs to let go of the pole if that person thinks oh the pole is so good it uh, look how high it took me i will not let it go what will hap- happen to him he'll come crashing down if the another person foolish in the other way thinks that i have to let go of the pole anyway so i won't take the pole i'll just go jump over the thing they'll never reach that height so the pole is the instrument which takes you that the height and at that moment you must let it go similarly these practices are to be uh, let go of once you are established in the truth sadhana nirmukta this is called siddha siddha means established another term used is yogi rat king of yogis so who is the king of yogis here he means the gyana yogi the person who has reached the highest in the path of knowledge gyana yogi yogi rat i have earlier mentioned the four categories in vichar sagar text there are four categories of um, people in this world pamara vishayi sadhaka siddha pamara is an instinctual instinctual life i want pleasure i'm living for the next um, hit of pleasure so uh, an uh, addict or an alcoholic or something is uh, the person who is so addicted to the next burst of pleasure pamara instinctive life or maybe a little better there are degrees person lives only for wealth and and pleasure in sanskrit kama artha artha means wealth kama means pleasure that's all i want in life i want a million dollars and i want to party wall street and hollywood 
these are the two places I've lived in in, in USA. <laughs> no, I am oversimplifying. But I mean, the, the reduced to the grossest essentials. I, I want to have fun and I want to be rich and successful. But that's Palmer, that's, in, that's also instinctive. A person goes beyond that. Vishayi, Vishayi here, Vishayi, the word in Indian languages does not have a good meaning. It's somewhat pejorative, but actually it has a good meaning in the sense a decent worldly person. Vishayi is a worldly person, but a decent worldly person. See, most of us, we are not, people are not Palmer. Most people in this world are people who have moral standards. They are decent, law-abiding, good people. And it, we think of ourselves as good people, so we struggle to maintain a certain moral standard. We're not here just to, um, I mean, as long as the police don't catch me, I'll do whatever I want. That kind of attitude very few people have, luckily. Otherwise, society would fall apart. So the second, a higher kind of person is, who holds himself or herself to certain standards, moral and ethical standards, religious standards, vishayi, dharmika, religiously based, but the goals are still worldly. Instead of just artha and karma, pleasure and, and success, this person also wants dharma, goodness, decency, religion, morality, ethics. So dharma artha karma becomes the goal of the, the second category. The third category is the spiritual seeker. That person may also have dharma artha karma in his or her life, but they are, they are no longer the motivating factors in life. This person has become a spiritual seeker. And to some extent, anybody who is sitting here is already in the third category. That third category is called sadhaka, a spiritual practitioner, a spiritual seeker. You wouldn't be here otherwise. So, spiritual seeker, what is the aim of life? Does God exist? Can I truly find abiding peace in, in life, joy in life, stability in life? What the big questions of life that really motivates you, then you are a sadhaka already, third category. And that sadhaka has a wide range, can just begin as a spiritual seeker to very advanced seekers, practitioners who have been at it for a long time. And then you go beyond to the fourth category, Siddha. So the Sadhaka, what's the goal of the Sadhaka? Not Dharma, Artha, Kama, but Moksha. Moksha is the goal. Enlightenment is the goal. Salvation is the goal. Nirvana is the goal for the seeker. Beyond this is the fourth category, Siddha, the one referred to here. Siddha means the one who is perfected, enlightened. What is the goal of this person? No goal. Not pleasure, not wealth. Not conventional religion or morality, not even enlightenment, because the person already has got that. Shankaracharya sings in um, Nirvana Shatakam, Chidananda Rupa Shivo, how many of you have heard that? There, there is one line. What is my aim in life? Na dharmo, na chartho, na kamo, na moksha. Not dharma, not artha, not kama, neither pleasure nor worldly success nor even conventional religion and morality. Not even moksha, enlightenment and freedom, not even that. Why? Chidananda rupaha shivoham shivoham. I am infinite consciousness. I am existence, consciousness, bliss, I am the nature of Shiva. I realize that. So I have none of these goals anymore. That is Siddha. You become that then. Becoming that, na vishayo manaso giram. The nature of this enlightened person is a mystery to the worldly. 
One is at a practical level. The nature is a mystery. Why in the practical level? Sri Ramakrishna says, this enlightened person may appear to others, Jaravat, like a, like a piece of stone, you know, absolutely immersed in Samadhi, no concern for the world, not even for his own body. No. Deeply immersed, interiorized. Um, Unmadavat, like a crazy person. In every religion you see enlightened person, there are crazy, crazy people of God. They behave like madmen. From our point, from the worldly point of view, we don't see, they seem insane to us. But we seem insane to them, of course. That's also the other way around. <laughs> Balakavat, sometimes they behave like children. Uh, like little little children uh, who seem to be absolutely naive about the world, completely innocent. Often saints are like that, childlike. There's a difference between being childish and childlike. The children, uh, the saints are not, never childish, they're childlike. So for an ordinary person to understand them is difficult. To judge a Jivan Mukta, enlightened, free while living, the enlightened person, the perfected one, we judge them according to our own criteria, understanding. So our judgments really do not apply to them. That's one practical way in which they are mysterious. There's one philosophical way in which they are mysterious because they are one with Brahman. They realize they don't seem, an enlightened person doesn't say, I am an enlightened being. An enlightened person, if you push that person, they will say, I am Brahman, I am one with the Absolute. I am not a person who is enlightened. So that Absolute is always beyond our speech and our language. We always say it's beyond speech, beyond language. So in that sense also the enlightened person is beyond speech, beyond language. You all seem to be beyond speech and language also. <laughs> no, I, I made a mistake. Not beyond speech and language. Beyond language, beyond thought. Manaso giram. Gira means uh, words. Beyond words and beyond thoughts. Yes. So, you do know that you are welcome to ask questions at any time. Interrupt observations, comments, questions. Yeah. All right. Now, next. So, this is about the person who has practiced these meditation techniques and attained perfection, enlightenment. But, uh, now the bad news. So far it was the good news. The bad news is, it's going to come now in the two verses, will, you will inevitably face a number of difficulties. And so he enumerates the obstacles to meditation. Now these obstacles to meditation are also common to any kind of meditation, not just Vedantic meditation. There may be varieties, but whether you are practicing uh, Patanjali Yoga or Kundalini Yoga or Buddhist mindfulness or Vedantic meditation, or repeating a mantra, you will find some, some of these obstacles are common to all. So let's see what the obstacles are. Uh, 127-28 Samadho Kriya Marnetu Samadho Kriya Marnetu Vignanyayanti Vaibalat Vignanayanti Vaibalat Anusandhana Rahityam Anusandhana Rahityam Alasyam Bhogalalasam Alasyam Bhogalalasam Layasthamascha Vikshepo Layasthamascha Vikshepo 
ಶೂನ್ಯತಾಶೂನ್ಯತಾಘ್ನಬಾಹುಲ್ಯಂ ಘ್ನಬಾಹುಲ್ಯಂ ತ್ಯಾಜ್ಯಂ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮ ವಿಶನೇ ತ್ಯಾಜ್ಯಂ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮ ವಿಶನೇ ಸೊ ಶಂಕರಾಚಾರ್ಯ ಹಿಯರ್ ಹಿ ಹಸ್ ಗಿವನ್ ಏಟ್ ಕೈಂಡ್ಸ್ ಆಫ್ ಆಬ್ಸ್ಟಿಕಲ್ಸ್ ದಟ್ ವಿಲ್ ದಟ್ ಆರ್ ಲೈಕ್ಲಿ ಟು ಕಮ್ ಅಪ್ ವೆನ್ ಯು ಟ್ರೈ ಟು ಪ್ರಾಕ್ಟೀಸ್ ದೀಸ್ ಟೆಕ್ನಿಕ್ಸ್ ವಾಟ್ ಆರ್ ದ ಏಟ್ ಸಮಾಧು ಕ್ರಿಯಮಾನಿ ವನ್ಸ್ ಯು ಪ್ರಾಕ್ಟೀಸ್ ದೀಸ್ ಟೆಕ್ನಿಕ್ಸ್ ವಿಘ್ನಾನ್ಯಾಯಾಂತಿ ವೈಬಲಾತ್ ಫೋರ್ಸ್ಫುಲಿ ಇನ್ಎವಿಟೆಬ್ಲಿ ಸಮ್ ಆಫ್ ದೀಸ್ ಪ್ರಾಬ್ಲಮ್ಸ್ ವಿಲ್ ಕ್ರಾಪ್ ಅಪ್ ವಿ ಆರ್ ಬೆಟರ್ ವಾಂಡ್ ಇಟ್ ಹಿಯರ್ ಯು ಕಾಲ್ ಇಟ್ ಹೆಡ್ಸ್ ಅಪ್ ಸೊ ಯು ಆರ್ ಡೋಂಟ್ ಗೆಟ್ ಡಿಪ್ರೆಸ್ಡ್ ಇಫ್ ಇಟ್ ಕಮ್ಸ್ ಯು ಆರ್ ಬೀನ್ ವಾಂಡ್ ಯು ಎಕ್ಸ್ಪೆಕ್ಟ್ ದಟ್ ಇಲ್ ಕಮ್ ಫಸ್ಟ್ ಒನ್ ಅನ್ ಇಂಪಾರ್ಟೆಂಟ್ ಒನ್ ಇಸ್ ಅನುಸಂಧಾನ ರಾಹಿತ್ಯಂ ಅನುಸಂಧಾನ ಹಿಯರ್ ಮೀನ್ಸ್ ಎನ್ಕ್ವೈರಿ ಆಬ್ಸೆನ್ಸ್ ಆಫ್ ಎನ್ಕ್ವೈರಿ ಇನ್ ವೇದಾಂತ basically it's a process of inquiry any technique you take up uh, the 15 techniques it's basically a process of inquiry you take up the uh, say the tyaga um, for example tyaga in i'm looking at verse 106 tyaga prapancha rupasya chidatmatva avalokanat by seeing the one existence consciousness bliss everywhere you give up the names and forms you are no, no longer attracted to names and forms you see the consciousness everywhere that in me the consciousness everything appears now you have to keep your attention on this it's not just sitting quietly or thinking other things you have to actually think this and notice it for example a typical technique which we learned in drigdrishya viveka it's this here is an object now i am seeing the object through my eyes so i use the object to become aware of my eyes i bec- use my mind to become aware of my eyes the eyes are open or closed so i use the eyes to become aware of the mind the mind is watching the eyes and then the mind itself the thoughts in the mind are shining in the light of consciousness which i am reflecting it back you're going back you know the what the technique is if i show you the object and you focus on the object that's vedanta that is yogic meditation so there is the deity focus on the deity that is yogic meditation but there is the object become aware that the object is in my experience then i use the object to become aware of myself so i'm not concentrating on the object i'm using the object as a support to become aware of myself and then i go progressively deeper eyes mind and the witness of the mind which i am and then what did the, the, the meditation teach us in drigdrishya viveka once you become aware within quotes of awareness itself use a vedantic text asangoham satchidananda dvaita varjita i am the unattached pure consciousness self luminous swaprabha self luminous dvaita varjita devoid of duality i am that reality use a text to stabilize yourself if another thought comes up or some perception comes up use that to again see that it it is coming up in me the consciousness it is quite a bit of work no surprise if you end up with a little headache 
So it's, it's not at all easy. But suppose you don't do that. Just sitting. What's going on? Nothing. I'm fine. <laughs> there was this cartoon of two Zen monks sitting. One is a young man, you can see that. One is a veteran old monk. And the one, older one is teaching the younger one meditation. And the cartoon, and it says there, and they both look very intense and serious. And the caption there says, this is it. Then there's silence. The younger one's confused. What? Nothing. This is it. <laughs> so, so this is actually quite a bit of work. You're using the mind to focus back on something that is shining upon the mind, the witness of the mind. So ultimately you'll drop that. That, that using the mind is like the pole of the pole vaulter. It's not important. You'll drop that also. But you must first do that, not just sit quietly. If you don't do that, that's called anusandhana rahityam. Lack of inquiry. It's like if you are repeating a mantra, you are supposed to sit quietly and repeat Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. But suppose you sit quietly and don't repeat it. So that's equivalent to that. Anusandhana Rahityam. You are not doing anything. That happens sometimes. Then the next one is Alasyam, well known, laziness. You just don't feel like it. The biggest temptation to meditation is taking a nap. When your body relaxes, oh, I'm so tired, maybe I'll take a little nap and then come up and meditate again. Alasyam, laziness. Not willing to sit for meditation. Not pursuing that. Alasyam. Bhogalalasam. The desire for enjoyment. So if the desire for sense enjoyment is there in the mind, when you make the mind quiet, they will come up powerfully. So you're sitting for meditation. Oh, there's a nice snack in the fridge. I have forgotten totally. Now maybe I should f f go and have a little bit and come back and sit in meditation. It pulls you out and drags you there for what's in the fridge. Common sense, of course, you should use. Um, there are funny stories about it. I have told you this about Prapanchko Mitado. It's a well-known story in the Himalayas. The monks in the Himalayas, in the deep winter months, when the places where they get their food, those places close for the deep winter months, for four months, five months. It's snow all around. So before they close, they gave a bundle of supplies to the monks. So the monks can take it to their cave or their hut and so that they can, they're provided for for the next f four or five months. So this monk, these, in one place they received uh, like a brick or, or like a cake of they call gourd, molasses, molasses, it's a sweet, it's a gourd. So they got that. And so this monk, they tied it up in a piece of paper and they got it. And these monks came back to their hut. And this monk who had got the molasses, he tied it up the roof of the hut because otherwise mice will get at it. So it hangs there. Then he goes to sleep at night. And he thinks, it would be nice to have a taste, you know, what it's like. Okay, he thought, I, I will be unable to sleep unless I taste a little bit of it at least. He gets up and he brings it down, lights the lamp and bit, breaks off a bit of it. Tastes it, ah, it's very nice, very sweet, good. Then he packs it up and he takes it up and ties it there and then he puts out the lamp and goes back to sleep and immediately thinks, a little more, I could have had a little more. And he gets up and brings it down and so on and so forth. Next morning his friend, the other monk, comes to his hut and sees that the molasses is not there. 
And he says, what happened to that? Where did that go? Uh, go? And this monk says, Prapanch ko mitadiya. Now, I, I, I don't know how to translate that. I wiped out samsara. <laughs> the, the source of attraction has been wiped out. That means he's, e- <laughs> he's eaten all of it. <laughs> and six months worth of molasses in one night. But that is bhogalalasam, the desire, subtle desire for enjoyment. It's not particularly subtle either. It's a desire for candy. That's, he had a powerful sweet tooth. So bhogalalasam, that prevents you from meditating. But common sense also should be used. Another monk, this I heard directly from that teacher. He was teaching us uh, Vedanta. He spent 40 years in the Himalayas in meditation. He used to stay in a cave. Now he has a small ashram. And he joked, you know, he used to tell us, that, uh, uh, oh monks, in my whole life I've committed only one sin. He said, what is that? I made this ashram. And we would say, no, 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 why are you saying that? It's because the ashram is there, we are able to come and listen to you. He said, I was happier in my cave. <laughs> uh, anyway, so the, jo- the story he told us, not a joke, the real story he told us was, one day when he was meditating, he thought, Look, I waste nearly an hour every day to go and drink a glass of milk. Because there is a particular place where they give a cup of milk or a glass of milk to all the monks in the neighborhood. This is in the, in the Gangotri, the source of the Ganga, in the high Himalayas. So you have to go there, but you have to trek over the hills. So it takes me an hour to go there, drink the milk and come back. So why waste an hour to just to go and drink a glass of milk? I can do without it. Uh, so he said, next day I did not go. This works very well in Hindi. He, the way he put it, very humorous. He looked at us and he said, To Mahatma Ji, Dhyan kya. Then monks, I engaged myself in meditation. Or kya Dhyan kya? What did I meditate upon? I meditated upon milk. Not for one hour, all day long. It was a good decision not to go. I saved so much time. Um, Maybe it's just not necessary. Look at me, I gave it up. So this is like what real monks should be like. Or maybe sometimes they thought, maybe I could go once in a week or once in two weeks. All of it was about milk, not Brahman. So the, his advice was always use common sense and then draw a line. Don't waste time thinking about it. I will do this, I'll do that. That's, you're still fine-tuning the world. Quickly settle those matters and come back to your spiritual practice, whatever it might be. You might be doing Buddhist mindfulness, you might be repeating the name of Krishna, you might be doing Vedantic Niridhyasana, Vedantic meditation, whatever. Bring your mind back. I know one senior Swami of our order who had spent a lot of time in the Himalayas in meditation who told me a story. He saw this young monk one day, a Punjabi monk, well built, and you could see, you could see from his face that he was really. Um, he had a deeply spiritual nature. But what was this young, well-built young monk doing? Uh, the Swami told me that all day long, as long as there was sunlight, this young monk was working so hard. He was uh, going up to a, some part of, a, of a, a high hill, bringing down stones and taking up other material. He was building a cave. That would take him months, maybe years to do. And all those hours of hard work, idea being, once I have a nice cave, I can meditate. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's a mind playing trick. And there are so many other caves. Why can't you go and sit there? Why can't there are so many ashrams, so many um, 
temples, so many huts. Why can't you go and sit there and meditate? No. I must have my own deluxe cave. <laughs> Trick of the mind. Bhogalalasam. Layaha. Layaha means, the next one is sleep. So, one big problem, and that I, I can see people nodding yes. So, it's, it's a common problem. You try to meditate, you fall asleep. And that's not, uh, uh, that's not surprising for two reasons. One reason is, when you close the eyes, the signal to the mind and the brain is, okay, this guy wants to sleep now, let's go to sleep. Because we generally close our eyes when we want to sleep. Now, that's why one way is to keep the eyes half open, but it depends on your technique of meditation, whatever your teacher has told you. Main thing is not to fall asleep. Another reason why sleep is very natural is, many people do not know in modern life how tired they are. Um, the, among the most sleep-deprived people in the world are people who dwell in the modern cities of the world today in 21st century. So people are very tired. I have often led people in uh, stress management exercises, um, deep relaxation exercises, corporate executives. Inevitably some of them will fall asleep, although the objective is not to fall asleep. And that's alright. They fall asleep because they really need it. Uh, anxiety, being constantly on the go, and Starbucks prevents you from falling asleep. So, um, that's another reason why people fall asleep. But the, that is not the point. You should not fall asleep. I remember, and it is a problem for us when we were young novices in, in our main monastery in Belurmat, we were also sleep deprived because um, you had to go to bed at 10.30 strictly and we, in 24 hours we had 26 bells regulating our life and everything was strictly by the bell. 10.30, that was the most hated bell of all, because that meant go to sleep. And all the poor uh, monk, young monks who had drifted up to sleep would suddenly sit up with a start. What was that? It means go to sleep now. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then promptly at 3.40 in the morning, there's a person who's got a duty of, he goes and rings the bell helpfully in next to your ear until you wake up. <laughs> and you have to go to the temple to meditate. Wash your face and brush and all that and get ready and go with your meditation mat and go to the temple and meditate. Now you haven't had much sleep, it's really hot, 100 in the shade, and it's really humid, 100% humidity, and there are no fans. Forget air conditioning, no fans also. So by the time you reach the temple, you're already drenched in sweat at, at 4 o'clock in the morning. And you sit. Then you have a whole party of mosquitoes which will descend upon you. <laughs> so it's not an easy thing. And you will have these brahmacharis dozing off or, you know, we, it's a difficult, uh, it's, it was quite difficult. I admit I was one of the <laughs> worst ones. I get so sleepy. And I remember some of us were given, you know, by, we had rotation, some duties. So there was a particular duty of cleaning the temple early in the morning. I was so happy when I was asked to scrub the temple for an hour in the morning because I thought that was much better than struggling with sleep and mosquitoes sitting <laughs> for meditation. Um, so, and a very senior monk I remember once in class was telling us so plaintively, look, he says, look young monks, um, don't just fall asleep. I know it's difficult, but don't just fall asleep. Try a little while at least to stay awake. <laughs> Another monk told me once that 
one day I had really had good meditation. Suddenly I felt somebody hitting me from the back. And like two, three hundred monks meditating together. And it's dark in the temple early in the morning before sunrise. I felt somebody hitting me in the back. I looked and this monk, they have, we all have these chadar, cloths. So he was hitting me with a cloth like that. I whispered to him, what? <laughs> and he goes, sleep if you want to, but don't snore. <laughs> he said, I thought I was really having good meditation, but apparently I'd gone to sleep and I was also snoring to boot. <laughs> Layaha, that's a problem. Sleep. And one must overcome that. Then tamaha. Tamaha means uh, darkness that is dullness. You're not asleep. You're just sitting there. And uh, random thinking, uh, sitting there, feeling... Uh, uh, it's not exactly laziness, it's not sleep either. But, uh, but it is a kind of dullness. You're definitely not doing the technique you're supposed to do. Tamaha, that's darkness. Just the opposite of that is vikshepa. Vikshepa means frantic thinking. So, think, mind is racing. Lots of other things are coming. You're sitting quietly, but a lot of other things are coming in the mind. Uh, and uh, we, we had time, you know, like you have the minimum time is one hour, one and a half hours. And all these young people, or we are all products, especially the newer newer ones, are products of the IT age, where uh, constantly used to being distracted. So to make them sit still for one and a half hours in the morning and one and a half hours in the evening, is, it's not an easy task. And so either you fall asleep or the opposite end is become distracted and keep looking at the clock. When, when am I allowed to get up? <laughs> and there are strict meditation masters. There's one Swami, I didn't get him, but I've heard horror tales from my seniors who would stand strict watch and if he saw any of the novices coming back from the temple um, before one hour was up you know coming back with the meditation mat and sort of thinking maybe I can get 15 minutes of uh, nap before the next item which is chanting and this Swami would be standing there with one of those old clocks you know these big clocks with the big dial face and because you don't speak so early in the morning, you stand, you're standing there near the staircase and will thrust it in your face. <laughs> the point being, go back to meditate. There's still 15 minutes or 20 minutes left. So the poor novice would trudge back again. Uh, you might say, this doesn't seem very helpful, but it's actually very helpful. The initial period, if, I mean, I only look back upon those senior monks with great, great gratitude. I, I saw that all of that as a labor of love. I mean, I have um, all the affection and um, encouragement I received from senior monks. I'm grateful for that. And all the scoldings I received from senior monks. I know I and all the other monks I've met, they're all most, even more grateful for that. I remember this vikshepa, distraction. I remember once in meditation time, I was very new, few months into the order, a novice. Meditation time, I thought I would prepare for the classes next day. I was teaching school at that time. So at that time, preparation means going to the library and taking out encyclopedias. There were no computers in those days. So I opened the library, I took out an encyclopedia, and I saw this senior monk, who was the second monk in charge of the ashram, a very strict Swami. He's standing there, you know, like, I don't know where, how they find out. The Swami seemed to know everything. That they are at, the, at exactly the time you don't want them around. He's standing there and glaring at me. What are you doing? 
I said, oh, Swami, this is uh, tomorrow there's a class. It's all excuses. It's mind-playing tricks. I have to prepare for class, so I thought I'll you know, use a bit of the meditation time for prepare for classes. I still remember. Put the book back. I sort of stuttered and now. So I put it back. <laughs> lock the Almira. I locked the Almira. Now go upstairs. The temple was upstairs. Go upstairs to the temple. And so I sort of crept upstairs and went all the time looking back and he was glaring, standing there glaring at me until I went into the temple. That's out of sheer love. It creates a habit in you. Once the taste is created, once the joy and the peace of meditation become evident, nobody has to encourage you to do that. It becomes a lifelong practice. Still it's alright. In, in some um, uh, Vedanta, uh, no, some, some Zen monasteries, the meditation teach, teacher will walk around with a bamboo stick. So if you are drooping, if your posture is not right, he'll hit you on the head with a bamboo stick. So at least I don't have to face that. Um, Vikshepa, that's Vikshepa. And today in the world we are continuously distracted. That's a real big problem. Um, especially the intelli uh, our, uh, these intelligent devices. Yeah. Intelligent devices or infernal devices? <laughs> they're all made for samsara, they are not made for spiritual life. I heard this talk by uh, an ex, an engineer from Google who gave up his job. He said, there's a whole group of people in Silicon Valley, most talented engineers, Facebook, Google, Twitter and all of that. We are continuously trying to see how much more of your attention we can get. They call it the battle for the attention economy. Why is it important? Why is it important to get my attention? Why am I so important? You are important because they run on revenues. It all comes down to money. And if they can prove that more people are logging on to their website or their thing, um, their device, uh, then they get more advertisements. So your attention is important. Now how can they draw your attention? They're continuously tweaking these devices. Do you notice how much your cell phone beeps and you know, it'll go ting and it'll go twang, it'll, it'll vibrate a little. Most of it, 90% of it is absolutely unessential. They will disguise it as, oh there's something that has come, an update which is happening, uh, uh, something which has come in your Facebook or text or something like that. But he said in that interview, the name was I think mind hacking or brain hacking, the interview was called brain hacking. Um, it became a bit of a scandal then. And he said that we actually we do it so that you get into the habit of being distracted. Continuously, every few minutes we want to break your concentration. So that only just look at the, if you just look at the phone once, if you just, that comes into your mind, we are happy. And it becomes, we, said, we know it becomes an addiction. Then if it's not there, you become restless. Many people cannot switch off their phones anymore. That's exactly, he said, that's exactly what we wanted. A real addiction of a drug that's illegal and that can have direct consequences for your health. So people don't want that, they're careful now. But this is mild and it works its way and it, he says it, the, the neurology of this addiction is exactly the neurology of, of uh, heroin or crack or something else. The same things happen to your uh, nervous system because of this. Vikshepa, continuous distraction. Reading a lot of Vedanta doesn't ensure that you will not have this. 
I remember from one of my teachers who's still alive, Vedant Abhmank, he's 104 years old now. He told me about his teacher who was a pundit, a great scholar of Vedanta in those days, a very great scholar. Um, this Swami told me many years ago in the 1930s when he used to go to that scholar to study Vedanta. He said, look, he told me, there's no doubt he was a great scholar and his books are really good. But I also saw the other side. Every day in the evening when he would sit down to do his japa on the bank of the Ganges, many people used to do that at that time, I would see him sitting there with a japa mala and he does his japa like this, doing japa. So distracted. So that's a discipline to remain focused in one point. Just by reading Vedanta or becoming a great scholar of he was a great scholar of Nyaya and Vedanta. There's no doubt about his scholarship, but that does not make him a, a good meditator. So that's an obstacle, vikshepa. Then the next one is Rasaswada, seventh one. A great joy. You might say that sounds nice. That comes if you persist long enough. Flashes of joy and peace will come. Rasaswada is dhanyuaham, I am blessed. Oh, I am so happy. I am so peaceful, so pure and so calm and so full of light. But that's not what you are supposed to do. That is an outcome of meditation. When by meditation the mind becomes sattvic, it becomes full of joy. But that can become an obstruction to meditation. That's not enlightenment. The very fact that it comes and goes, it is subject to increase and decrease. It shows that it is not it's, it is a good sign, but it's a sign. It's not what you are after. I have seen people getting stuck there. Monks. One, I remember one monk whom I really like. I mean, if you just see him, he's so peaceful. And uh, his face has a glow. And um, he's far senior to me. And everybody likes him. He's very gentle. And you, could, you should see him meditating. He just sits like a Buddha for hours together. But the thing was... I mentioned this to one of the very senior monks in our order that that Swami seems to have got it. You know, he's in the flow. And that Swami, whom I asked him, he's one of the most luminous minds of our order, very, very advanced spiritual practitioner. He said with exasperation, that's the whole problem. He has already found peace. He's not denying that he has found peace, but that's not a highly spiritual peace. That's a peace of a Pure, calm and innocent mind. Rasaswada, you get a bliss in it, a joy in it. And then you want to stay there, you don't want anything more after that. But that is not spirit, that is not Vedantic enlightenment. That's not permanent. So the, I still remember that answer. That is the whole problem, he has already found peace. <laughs> this is called Rasaswada. Then the last one is Shunyata, a kind of vacuum. You are not disturbed. You're not sleepy. You're not particularly blissful also. You're just sitting quietly. A kind of vacuum where you don't find you're grounding in any kind of practice, nor anything to do, nor any kind of particular disturbance, that comes also. In a quiet mind, it comes. So that's also an obstruction. That's not a spiritual practice. So these are the eight what do you do? Evam yad vigna bahulyam tyajyam brahmavido vidashanai. He does not give any solution. He says probably for him the solutions are obvious. 
Don't fall into them. <laughs> Rouse yourself from them whenever you come across these. Identify this is the problem. Go back to the practice. You have a wide range of 15 practices. Go back to any one of them. I think we have run out of time. If you have any comments or questions at this point, yes. Yeah, so many other problems may be there. Let's hope that we have tackled the mosquito problem and the heat problem and all of that. Um, but yes, these are the internal obstacles in the mind. Yes, Our mind generating these obstacles. So, in fact, a monk in Hollywood, when I was supposed to come to the United States, so he was enticing me to that. Yes, you say yes, come. I can promise you a mosquito-free meditation room. <laughs> I remember when I came to Hollywood the first day, the first night itself, I opened my suitcase and out buzzed a mosquito. <laughs> it had traveled all the way from Calcutta <laughs> without a visa. <laughs> Imagine, uh, it, it was in, in, in the luggage hold, in all that cold, it didn't die. Anyway, so yes, these are obstacles created by the mind. And they are common to any kind of meditation practice that you do. They'll come up. They're bound to come up. Yes. Um, tell me, what is the difference between the first and the second one? Uh, first one is lack of inquiry and the second is laziness. Yes. Um, I used to think that I'm not inquiring because I'm mentally lazy. But how might there be difference? Laziness might prevent you from sitting for meditation also. Right? Many people think that sitting in meditation is a sign of laziness. <laughs> Not doing anything, you're sitting quietly. But sitting for meditation is a lot of work. And if at the beginning we don't like it or enjoy it, then slowly the mind dev develops an aversion for it. So the mind keeps putting it off. That can also be laziness. But the lack of inquiry is when I'm sitting, maybe quite quietly, maybe even feeling that, okay, I'm quiet and calm, but not doing anything in particular. So that's lack of inquiry. That's, that's an important thing to point out because the whole point of all these practices is the inquiry. All those 15 practices we talked about, they are all various forms of the same inquiry. That I am Brahman. So one must keep, as far as possible, keep the mind engaged in that. Very good. <laughs> Alright, that's the last question. Why you said that, uh, you know, if the obstacles come, you have to just overcome. Yeah. Yes, they are mentioned. The techniques to overcome these obstacles, they are dealt with in different yoga books. Um, some similar obstacles are there in Patanjali Yoga, they are mentioned. In Mandukya Upanishad, Mandukya Karika, Gaurapada Acharya mentions four of these obstacles, not eight. And he talks about the techniques of overcome. But the techniques of overcoming, if you actually see what the techniques are, they are uh, what you call here no-brainers. <laughs> if you're feeling, you'll see techniques like this. You're feeling sleepy. When the mind is feeling sleepy, awaken. <laughs> I could have told you that. <laughs> when the mind is scattered, calm it down. <laughs> but there are, uh, actually it's not as facile as it seems. Basically, you know, our teachers have told us. So you're feeling very lazy, for example, or, or sleepy. It might be a good thing to get up 
and go and wash your face. Maybe do the japam while walking around a little bit and then come back and sit. Good enough. That's when you are feeling uh, very sleepy, lazy. When you are feeling very distracted, then instead of keeping your eyes closed, keep your eyes open and focus on the deity. In the temple there is a bright image of the deity. Keep your eyes focused there. You need an external support. Otherwise, if you keep your eyes closed, the mind will go every which way. There are techniques. In Tibetan Buddhism, for example, they say when you visualize the deity, if your mind is becoming dull, this is a subtle overcoming. It will not work for gross problems, but for subtle problem, mind is becoming dull and sleepy, brighten, turn on the lights in your imagination. Make the deity more bright and light. It's like floating and illumined and shining. That's when your mind is lazy, when your mind is dull. If your mind is becoming distracted, then make the image less bright and more heavy, like a stone image sitting here. That gives a suggestion to the mind. Actually, when you actually go to meditation teacher, they will teach you with many subtle techniques. I mean, just an indication, feeling sleepy, wake up. <laughs> but there are ways to wake up, there are subtler and subtler ways to wake up. A simple way might be to go and wash your face, but a more subtle way might be to make, make a change in the way you are visualizing the deity, make it more attractive inside. But the basic idea is the same everywhere. For example, look at the difference in the techniques, in the instructions. One is sitting, asana, sitting. Basically the goal is to keep the spine erect, but not rigid, not ramrod straight. Because you'll become very tired if you do that. Erect but flexible. So a good yoga teacher can teach you. Any of the good yoga teachers can improve your posture. So the instructions are, you have to sit straight, keep the neck and the chest and the waist in one line, keep the spine straight. Straight means the spine is naturally curved, so you can't actually make it straight like this. But um, flexible and free. Don't put your support on other things. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight instructions. That's one way of giving instructions. Another way of doing exactly the same thing is this. Sit like the mountain, breathe like the wind. Imagine a mountain sitting. Imagine you are the mountain sitting. That's a suggestion not to your linear cognitive mind. That's a suggestion to your subconscious mind. You will see your posture will become very steady. After all, you are the mountain. You don't fidget. So, if you imagine that, you will feel like sitting like that, massive like the mountain, unmoving. Breathing natural, breathe like the wind, not artificially. As the wind blows, so, so the breath flows in and out of the body. That's another way of teaching. Another way of teaching, you see Vivekananda, this we can use, is imagine, this is the way it works. Imagine, not how Vivekananda is sitting, that will not work. Imagine you are not there. Imagine Vivekananda is sitting here. The mind, if you tell the mind, sit like Vivekananda, that will lead to a struggle. Because the mind thinks, you are you, you can't sit like Vivekananda. So, it will be a form of imitation. But if you suggest to the mind, you are not there, I the person am not there, this is Vivekananda sitting. Then the mind, whatever it knows and understands about Vivekananda and has seen the picture, it will try to uh, express that. Imagine, I am not meditating. I imagine Vivekananda is sitting here. How Vivekananda is sitting? 
how it feels from inside, how Vivekananda is feeling, how he's breathing, and what thoughts are there in the mind of Vivekananda, not mine. I'm not trying to be Vivekananda, I'm not there at all, it is Vivekananda. Basically it's still you, but it's your mind's understanding of Vivekananda which is given free reign now. So these are different techniques. They use that in, in modern ways, that neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, so they use these techniques there. Various, uh, a good teacher will give you uh, suggestions according to your needs. But don't get caught up in those minutiae. The real thing is the inquiry. You can do it sitting here in, in the subway and whatnot. You can walk around doing that, sit here, do it. Alright, last, really last one now. So, you mentioned uh, sadhakas and siddhas. Yes. How do sadhakas eventually become siddhas? Oh, like this. The question here was, when do you finally, how long do you have to practice? You practice as long as you're practicing, as long as you need to practice, you are a sadhaka. But once you reach this, that your real nature is available to you right now, at a moment's notice, then you are siddha. And there are ways of checking this for yourself. People from outside can't check it. For example, in the Gita, at least two places, three places Krishna mentions, in one place it is called Sthita Pragyasya Lakshana. He discusses the one, the word itself is so evocative, Sthita Pragya, the one of stabilized wisdom. What is the wisdom? Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. But what wisdom is it? It's not the wisdom at the end of a Vedanta class. It's not the wisdom of who is trying to practice it or trying to understand it. It's the wisdom who has soaked himself into it and becomes part of this person. Sthita Pragya, stabilized wisdom, always available. Another term Krishna has used is Gunatita, one who has gone beyond Sattvarajastamas. All of these are signs of Siddha. Siddha, yes. That's what we should aim to be, from Sadhaka to Siddha. In Sadhaka also there is a whole range, a full spectrum. And ultimately one must become a Siddha, not a professional Sadhaka. <laughs> One must cross the river and let go of the boat. One must cross the bridge and let go of the bridge. Don't stay with the boat all, all your life. Don't clutch or hold on to the pole all the time. You must vault over at one time and let go. All right. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu